Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and here we are at the last Sunday after the day of Epiphany. And so what that means is, is we're transitioning in the church here. We're going to transition from sort of a celebration and a look at the way in which Jesus was revealed to be the Son of God in his life. That's the point of Epiphany. It's, it's a manifestation or revelation. And so each week you're looking at something in the life of Jesus where it's further revealing his identity as the incarnate Son of God. And so there, there can be eight weeks in Epiphany. It's season after Epiphany, there can be nine weeks. There can be, like this time, seven weeks. <clears throat> so here we are at the last Sunday of the Epiphany. And so the lessons for today were uh, Psalm 99, Exodus 24, verses 12 to 18, Philippians 3, verses 7 to 14, and Matthew 17, 1 to 9. So Matthew 17, 1 to 9 is about the transfiguration of Jesus. He takes three of his disciples, James and John and Peter, up onto, it says, a high mountain. We don't honestly know what mountain that is. There's some debate. It could be this one. It could be that one. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> it's, it, I know it's a high mountain. So he takes them up into this high mountain and they go up and he doesn't promise them anything, particularly when they go up the mountain. And so they get there and in, an odd thing happens. Jesus is transfigured. This, this light glows from within him. And, and he's dazzling, and, and his clothes even become white, whiter than any fuller could get them, which is a launderer or somebody who bleaches things. Um, it, and then there's two other guys there talking to him. And I, one of the mysteries of this for me is how did those guys know that those other two guys were Moses and Elijah? It's not like there were photographs, you know, there's nothing out there like that. So I, it's it's curious to me how they knew, but they did. Because Peter says, hey, it's a good thing we're here. Let's make some tents for you and Moses and Elijah. And then everything changed. <laughs> Suddenly a bright cloud comes over the mountain and then a voice comes from within that cloud that says, this is my well-beloved son and who I'm well-pleased, listen to him. And those other two guys are gone at that point. The disciples had fallen down. They were terrified. I'll bet. <laughs> Can you just imagine that whole scene? And it's just, and, and then it's over. That was all it was. That was the whole proclamation from God. This is my well-beloved son and who I'm well-pleased, listen to him. Okay. <laughs> And so they go. And then Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody this happened until after the whole resurrection thing happens. Well, it's a little bit confusing. That whole scene is a little bit confusing to me. But I understand it. Um, I understand kind of what's going on. And, I, and I, 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 it's, pos it's, it's completely possible that what's happening here is, is that it's for their benefit, those three guys, because what's getting ready to happen, they're honestly not prepared for. And we know they're not prepared for it because shortly before this was when Jesus had asked them who men say he was and who they say he was. And Peter makes this great confession of Jesus. <clears throat> You're the one. You are the Messiah. 
And Jesus congratulates him on that. But sort of by saying, it's not flesh and blood that told you this, but it's by the Spirit of God that you know these things. So it's a wonderful thing that he sees the Spirit working in Peter, but then shortly after that, he begins to speak about his crucifixion. And Peter gets in front of that to correct that idea. That's not what happens to Messiah. You got it wrong. And that's when Jesus turns to him and said, get behind me, Satan. So they're not prepared for this. They honestly don't believe it. They do not believe this is the way it's going to go. They believe everything else Jesus has said. I mean, Peter's confession there of, of who Jesus is, it is at least as powerful as a confession he makes after the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. The next day, those 5,000 come again. They were looking for another sign. Jesus says, you got one in mind? They said, yep, sure. Would you like you to feed us again? Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that today. And then he says, I'm the bread of life. And then he goes on through this whole thing. He won't feed them. Well, they all leave. He ran off 5,000 people in one day. I'm capable of doing that. <clears throat> but Jesus did it on purpose. <laughs> he, he intentionally did not do what they were asking him to do. And you've got to believe the disciples were wildly disappointed in that because, I mean, if you're on the vestry or the leadership team at a church and your pastor offends 5,000 people one day and they all leave, you've got doubt in your mind, but these guys are watching all these people leave and they're baffled by this because Jesus is saying things that are pretty strange. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they're saying, "You did really? Did you just encourage cannibalism? We're not sure what you're talking about. That, that doesn't make sense. We don't have a metaphor for that. We don't know what that's referring to. And so then Jesus kind of wheels on them and says, um, would you lead me to the 12. It's like, wow, he doesn't even mind running all of them off. And so he turns around and says that. And then Peter's response there, listen to how powerful this is. To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. He confessed him as Messiah way back in John 6. And he says, we believed. In other words, initially we heard you speak. We saw the things that you did. And and we believed, we committed ourselves to believing something. And then he says, and we've come to know it. So we've moved from belief to certainty in this, that you are the Holy One of God. He speaks for all of them. He doesn't say I, he says we. I'm speaking for the team here. This is what we believe. We're not leaving you, comma, yet. <laughs> Because we know what happens at the trial of Jesus. We know that Peter denies him three times. So th this vision here on the mountain that day, I believe, was as much for their fortification of their faith and, and for their own edification. They needed to see this, needed to hear this. They needed not to rely on everything else that had come before. They needed to rely on the words of Jesus. Now, that's an unusual thing because that's not how it worked. In the Old Testament, that's not how it worked at all. They come to the mountain. They believed that Moses is God's representative because they saw the plagues. They further believed when they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They further believed when God began to provide water and food for them while they were in the wilderness. And then they get to Sinai. And now they're going to have an encounter with God in the same way. Cloud comes down over the mountain. Moses is called up into the mountain. The voice of God comes from the mountain scares the daylights out of everybody there. They're so terrified by hearing God just proclaim the Ten Commandments that they know there's more to it than that. 
but they say, how about this? Let's make a deal. You, Moses, go up on the mountain with God and do this. And so that's our first lesson today is when Moses goes up on the mountain with God and God, God calls him into the mountain. And then the cloud descends on the mountain. He calls him into the cloud and he says, you're going to be here with me for 40 days and I'm going to give you the law. But it's not going to be you're doing, Moses. It's going to be mine because what it says exactly is this. Um, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud <coughs> covered it for six days. The seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. So there's a similar sort of an idea between these two, but the way that God said it wasn't, hey, y'all listen to Moses. What the people had already said was, we will do and we will listen. But the Lord said to Moses, come up and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So it, Moses might be the mediator of this, but it's God's word and God's going to give him things that he's written. Not that Moses is writing, but that God is writing. And all this stuff, all this cloud and fire and all that other stuff authenticates that's an encounter with God. And it, it's after Moses had his own encounter with God at the same place. It was a much softer, gentler sort of an encounter. It was called the burning bush and it's at this same mountain. And we know that it's at that same mountain because Moses wanted a sign from the Lord that these things would happen and he would bring the people out of Egypt. And he said, okay, here's the sign. The sign is when you have done this, you'll worship me here on this mountain. So we know that's the same mountain. Now, I don't know if God just doesn't understand the nature of a sign from a human perspective, but it's not. It, what Moses wanted was comfort that it would succeed. And God said, okay, here's the comfort that it will succeed. After you've done it, <laughs> You'll worship here. Moses, I'm sure he's looking and thinking, not comforted, <laughs> not comforted. But God's saying, you got to step out in faith and then you'll come here and you'll worship on this mountain. And then God shows up at that mountain, not in a burning bush, but in fire and thunder and all the other stuff that attends it. So the people knew when Moses went up on the mountain, he wasn't going up there making stuff up that he was going up there to meet directly with God. Some of the elders went up with him at one point and met with God. So they had seen something. So you got 72 people who have seen something, 600,000 plus who have heard the voice of the Lord giving the Ten Commandments. The greatest mass revelation ever in history was these 600,000 plus people hearing that. That's why Judaism is in most ways different from every other world religion. Most world religions think about um, Islam. How many people got a revelation? One. It's typical. So Buddhism, how many people got a revelation? One. How many? 600,000 plus people at the foot of Sinai all witnessed this. So it, it, it makes it incredibly different. Same with Jesus. Same with Jesus's ministry. All these people see him and all that. Paul at one point says several hundred people saw the resurrected Jesus. So we've got this, this attestation that's there. And so, so there's a similarity between Jesus going up the mountain and Moses. Went there. Remember what would happen with Moses when he would come down the mountain after meeting with God after this, he would come down and he would have a, a God tan 
You know, his face would be shining, and it was because it was reflected. It was like the moon reflecting the sun. And so he would come down, and then that thing would fade, and it scared the people. Even that little bit of God reflected on Moses after he met with him would scare people to death. I can remember we were at a, a conference one time. It was um, in Charleston, and we were sitting around tables in groups, and those groups were the same every single day we were there. And it's, this thing's called Curcio, by the way, C-U-R-S-I-L-L-O, if you want to look it up. So I went for prayer one time, and these people prayed for me, and I came back and sat down at the table, and the woman next to me said, oh, my gosh. And I'm thinking, well, what did I do? Did I step on your foot, sit on your foot? What did I do? She said, y'all, feel this. Come here and feel his arm. So when he sat down, I could feel heat coming off of him. And I said, oh, I'm happy that you noticed that. I said, there have been multiple times in my life when people prayed for me or when I felt like God was specifically speaking to me that I had a sensation that my body temperature had gone way up. And she said, no, it felt like the sun sat down next to me when you came in here and everybody at the table is now reaching over there feeling my arm. And it's just, when we have an encounter with the Lord, sometimes it, it, it's a whole body experience. And so I, I, that did happen that day. So I was glad that somebody noticed it that, and that it was real. You know, it was something other people could tell. I got a sense of what it was like for Moses to come down the mountain like this. But that's a reflected glow with the transfiguration. It's completely the opposite. This is coming from Jesus. It's peeling back a veil that hid the glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God wasn't on Jesus, it was in Jesus. It was radiating outward, and everything it touched was changed, including his garments. So everything is changed because the glory of the Lord now has glorified everything that it touches. Elijah had similar kinds of experiences on, on mountains at Mount Carmel. That's where he took on the prophets of Baal and um, gave the people a choice. You've seen what happened here. The Lord showed up and did this versus Baal didn't show up for, the, for these guys. And so then he had his own encounter with the Lord when he was by himself at the mountain. And the Lord shows up in a soft voice and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? So you, 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 these guys, and when, when he authenticated himself, whenever he gave a word from the Lord, he would say, as the Lord your God lives, blah, 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 blah. So what he's saying is, is that, that the Lord said to me, if these aren't my words, these are, these are the Lord's words that he has spoken to me. And those words are then authenticated first when there's a drought. And then when it begins to rain after the thing at uh, Mount Carmel, when he sees a cloud that looked like a man's fist and he said, it's going to rain now. And so the things that he predicted, the things that happened when he said, the Lord says this, it happened. And so that authenticated it. But he didn't say, I say, he said, the Lord says. And so the word of the Lord came to me. Blah, 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 blah. Every prophet authenticates himself that way. There's one guy who doesn't, though, and that's Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we were reading in Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, dot, 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 but I say. Well, you're carving out some unique territory there, big boy. We're going to have to watch this. We're going to have to see your mode of life to see what authority 
you do these things on him. That's the thing that they asked him when he came in and cleared the temple. By what authority do you do these things? They always wanted to know what his authority was because he didn't appeal to an authority. The authority was in himself. He's unique. That's the entire point of all that, is, is that it, they wanted you to say, by the authority of Rabbi blah, 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 I say these things, I teach these things, and I do these things. I have the authority of the Sanhedrin to come in here and drive out the money changers and sellers of sacrificial animals. And Jesus never did. Well, that's not the way it works. You give you don't have any authority in yourself. Your authority comes from somebody else. And Jesus didn't say, but it's by the authority the Father has vested in me. No, he's one with the Father. He, he had the authority because he was the only begotten son of the Father. And so he had the authority in himself. And so when the voice comes to him on the mountain that day and says, this is my well-beloved son, listen to him. What it's saying is, is that, that Jesus doesn't have to appeal to another authority. Whatever he says has all the authority of heaven behind it. So when you read the Bible, when you read the red letters particularly, you know those things are absolutely perfectly true for all times and in all places. And they've been true from before time began and will be true until the end of time. When there is no sun, moon, and stars. It's unbelievable what that means when the Father says those words. And yet, they still doubt it. We know that from the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus goes up into the clouds, there's some there after the resurrection. It says, some doubted. Well, the point is, stop doubting and believe. God has authenticated his son. He authenticated him in two ways that day, by the voice that comes from heaven and by the transfiguration. And that transfiguration is so unique that nobody ever claims to have seen anything like it before. I will tell you very quickly about something, though. And that is um, the rabbis so, so have a midrash about Adam and Eve. Right, So when Adam and Eve are created, this has to do with being naked and ashamed versus naked and unashamed. So the way they see that, not you know, obviously not unilaterally, but, but kind of close on this one, is, is that, that what happens is, is that when God created them, they were clothed in this light. It looked like to them they had clothing on because the light was a garment to them is the way it looked. And it looked that way to everything else on earth. And that was to authenticate them as God's representatives on earth. But it was also to create fear with those animals because their protection, essentially, I guess is the way to say it. They were protected against any harm because it created such fear that they were, they, they were little gods. And so they were naked and unashamed. And what they say is because they weren't aware of being naked. To them, they felt they were clothed in these garments of light. And after sin entered the world in the garden in uh, Genesis 3, the reason they felt naked and ashamed and made garments for themselves out of the fig leaves was because sin removed that. That garment is gone, and now they have the perception of being um, naked, and they're ashamed, and they're afraid, and so they hide from God. 
and he comes. And then he makes further garments for them. And it's, they're made out of animal skins, which again is a similar, but not, not anywhere near the same sort of protection because you, you, animal skins weren't just laying around. So animal or animals died so that that could happen. And God did it. <clears throat> so that is an unusual idea to say the least. But now the, the animals have seen God's protection and his love for his people, even though they've fallen. But those were imposed on them in the same way that the shining face of Moses was. For Jesus, it's coming inside out. It, it is who he is, and it's been veiled by his flesh. And so at that moment, the curtain is peeled back for those three disciples. They're on the mountain, and they're astonished. They're afraid. What do you say? It, whatever you believed. I mean, Peter made that great confession, as I said, in John 6. He made the confession at Caesarea Philippi. Okay, I believe that. I believe all those things. He's the Messiah. That's a great thing, but it's not quite the same as what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. You look at Jesus differently <laughs> after that. I'm not even sure how you speak to him for some period of time because it's like, I don't even know what to make of this. But they do. <laughs> and then they deny him still and all this. And so we're weak. We are so weak in our faith that that I'm not saying that's a little thing that he's being tried and, and probably going to be crucified, but but that weakened Peter's faith to a point where it couldn't even stand anymore. Even the guy who had seen Jesus transfigured couldn't do it, couldn't handle it. But there's redemption even for that. I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing to think that that the guy who had seen all this stuff and spent those three years with Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, heard the voice from heaven, all those things, falls, and Jesus restores him on the beach at the end of John's Gospel. It's a wonderful, beautiful passage, especially when you consider the height from which Peter had fallen and the, the height to which Jesus restored him. Feed my sheep. You're the leader. Wow. Amazing. That's the strongest passage and strongest thoughts about grace of God you're ever going to see is one who absolutely saw it all, experienced everything, experienced the love of Christ, was, was praised on different occasions, and then fell to the point where he denied him. And Jesus restored him, but he didn't restore him to the lowest level. He restored him to leadership. He put him at the head and said, go feed my people, go feed my sheep. It's an amazing thing. God's God's love for us is greater than we can ever begin to imagine because we would have been happy, as with Peter, I'm sure, to have accepted a pretty lowly position. Hey, I'm just glad to be back on the team. You know, I'll sit the bench for a while. and blah, blah. But no, that's not what Jesus did. No, he restored you to exactly the position that I had ordained for you before you fell because he knows us. <laughs> he knows who we are. There's hope for sinners. There's hope for even those who have seen and tasted and have fallen by sin. There's hope not just for restoration to being back on the team or being the water boy for the team. No, there's hope that God can restore you to greatness because we're all sinners and fall short for the glory of God. Paul knows that, right? I mean, Paul's involved in arresting Christians and trying to bring them to justice, which would have meant that they would have been killed as well. He was there holding coats at the stoning of Stephen and approved of all those things. God brought him onto the team. He wasn't even on the team at the time. God brought him onto the team and then set him up to be the greatest missionary that ever lived. 
the guy more responsible for Christianity all across the world than any other human being. They weren't going anywhere. <laughs> the 11 weren't. They liked it in Jerusalem. They felt pretty happy there. Even after the persecution broke out, the others scattered and they didn't. And so Philip, the deacon, goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel there. Well, Jesus had been there. So he's just telling the, you know, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. And so that the spirit falls. He doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He goes back to Jerusalem because that's where the disciples were. Even with the persecution, they didn't leave. He had to go back and find them and bring them out there and say, hey, the Lord's doing something over here too. Oh, you mean like Jerusalem, Judea, where we've been? Oh, yeah. Then Jesus said, Samaria <laughs> and to the ends of the earth. So Philip goes to Samaria because he's scratching his head thinking, where'd Jesus go? He went to Samaria. Okay, cool. Oh, that's right. He also said the gospel would go to Samaria. So I'll go there and see if he's telling the truth. And then Paul said, how about the rest of the world? Let's go there. Let's see what happens. God doesn't have something little in mind for you all the time. It's, you, you, you don't have to, when you repent and return to the Lord, you don't have to expect crumbs. The riches of God are available. It doesn't mean you'll have great ministry or whatever. That's not even what I mean. What I mean is, is that when he embraces you and brings you back to himself after you've fallen by sin, you're like the prodigal son who comes back and, and what he said, what he offered or wanted to offer to his father was, I'll be like a servant and slave to you. And the father says, no, 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 no. Go get robe, ring, and sandals. You're the son in this household. You didn't compromise that by denying me and saying you wished I was dead when you asked for your, or demanded your inheritance. No, you're restored to sonship. And that's how it is. And, and so we, as we move from Epiphany and we move into this next season, which is called Lent, which is heavily penitent, we, we veil the cross during that period of time because we want to experience again the joy of Easter. And part of the way we do that is we immerse ourselves in, in sorrow for our sins. We, we recollect those things. We don't try and hide them from ourselves because we can't hide them from him. But we stop hiding them from ourselves and we take ownership over those things. And then we are able better then to experience that blazing joy of Easter. So we're moving from one thing, one season into the other. And so at the end, it, we end Epiphany with the greatest revelation of Jesus imaginable in his life. Obviously, his death and resurrection and ascension make that revelation greater and greater and greater. But we put those things in the background as we understand that we are unworthy to partake in that. But we do so with the understanding that even though we might be unworthy because of Jesus, we are always worthy if we confess our sins, if we repent, and if we put all our faith in him, the one who's transfigured, the only one who's been transfigured, the only begotten son of God, the unique person in all of history. And that's what Paul says, that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he says, I want to be just like him. I want to know him in his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. That is not a message you hear ever hardly in American pulpits anymore. We, we Suffering 
You have bad theology if you understand suffering. No, no, no. Jesus came so that you would never have to suffer. That's an actual message that gets preached in America today. That if you're suffering, it must be because there's sin in your life. It must be because you don't believe enough. You're not, you're not grabbing the promise of God. The promise of God was take up your cross and follow me. Men will hate you. All the things they do to me, they will do to you because of me. It doesn't mean we have to embrace the sufferings. It means we have to be prepared for them. And we have to be prepared to suffer as he did. That's hard to do. It's not an exciting message to say, I want to suffer like Jesus did. But, it, but that message was exciting to Paul. He wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ. Not because he was some sort of a masochist, but because he recognized that in order to do the work God had given him to do, he would encounter opposition. And opposition he did. If you don't believe me, read 2 Corinthians 11 as Paul recounts all the things that happened to him. Beaten, stoned, all that stuff. Privations, everything else. We have to be prepared to do the work he's given us to do, which is go and proclaim him that all people might be saved. We do it out of love, knowing that's not what we're going to get in return all the time. But it's important as we move into Lent to center ourselves completely on Jesus, to let everything go that hinders us from loving him with our whole heart so that we may be made more like him and we can truly rejoice in a new way at Easter.